This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Congress is on a two-week Easter recess, which means members are back in Colorado holding town halls, meeting with constituents. This is one of the longest periods that members have been back since President Trump was inaugurated. Allison Sherry has just joined CPR as our government reporter. She's been catching up with the delegation and joins us. Allison, welcome to the show and to CPR. Hey, Ryan. Very nice to be here. Last week, you went on a bank tour with Cory Gardner, Colorado's Republican senator, and you sat down with him to talk afterwards. What did he have to say? I talked to Senator Gardner mostly about foreign policy. You'll remember last week the Trump administration ordered a military strike on a Syrian airbase and also dropped a very large bomb on Afghanistan. So I asked Gardner what he thinks of the foreign policy priorities in Trump's budget, which cuts diplomatic spending in favor of defense spending. He's not really on board. Many of these areas of foreign policy spending, whether it's a USAID dollars or other diplomatic efforts, actually result in some very significant savings because we're helping improve economies and we're preventing war. I think these are very important efforts that we fund, and so uh, I do have concerns about these levels of cuts to foreign policy missions. So it sounds like Senator Gardner opposes Trump's agenda there. Did you get into other areas of disagreement between them? He was pretty open about where he disagrees with the president, including on trade. Senator Gardner supported the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which opened up trade with a handful of East Asian and South Pacific countries. He says it would have helped Colorado farmers and businesses, but it was not supported by President Trump and is not expected to get a vote in the U.S. Senate. We've been starting to get glimpses in recent weeks of what immigration policy may look like under President Trump. It's unclear whether absolute numbers of deportations have increased, but there are certainly a lot of anecdotal stories of undocumented immigrants who'd previously been allowed to stay in the country being detained and held for deportation. Uh, Did the senator have anything to say about uh, what Congress might do in this regard? I did ask Gardner about it, whether this more stepped-up approach to immigration enforcement under President Trump might inspire Congress to finally tackle comprehensive immigration reform. He said he does plan to keep talking to colleagues about some kind of broader bill, which he called necessary. Gardner said accomplishing immigration reform would show the American people that Congress can do something good, but he didn't have a timeline for getting anything done. Now, since the inauguration, there's been a lot of guessing in Colorado about what approach this administration would take towards legal marijuana. Uh, Did the senator have any updates? Gardner said he had a couple of conversations with Attorney General Jeff Sessions, whose negative opinion on pot and pot smoking has been pretty clear. But Gardner said Sessions told him that it wasn't a priority for the president. And if it's not a presidential priority, things will likely stay the same, at least for now. And in the meantime, Gardner has actually been working on bills to help Colorado's industry. I've introduced legislation to fix the banking side of it. I've introduced legislation on the CBD oils. I I opposed it when it passed originally, but Colorado has proven that it's done a good job on it, I think, and there's more that we can do, and we can learn lessons from it and share that with other states. But this is one of those laboratory democracy questions, Uh, and damn straight, I'm going to stand up for state rights. You also talked to Boulder Congressman Jared Polis about this issue. He's a Democrat, and he's been running pro-marijuana bills for a long time. What did he say? Polis told me he has verbal agreements from what he calls a majority of Congress on some kind of measure to protect states with legal marijuana from a federal crackdown. But actually making it through the full process, a bill into a law, is a special kind of hurdle, and he didn't seem very optimistic. has to go through committee. Committee chairs don't like it. Leadership doesn't like it. President may or may not like it. A lot harder to get it across the finish line. Allison, you mentioned earlier what Senator Gardner is thinking on immigration reform, and I noticed that uh, Polis and Democratic Representative Diana DeGette of Denver 
are using the recess to meet with young undocumented immigrants in the Deferred Action Program. Uh, What did you hear from Polis about that? These are people who are dreamers whose parents brought them to the United States when they were young and are currently protected from deportation under an Obama-era program. Polis called them petrified that their current legal status would be canceled by the current president. And he says this would equate to Trump creating one million more illegal workers overnight. Well, finally, let's talk a bit about town halls. Republican Representative Scott Tipton is holding a couple this week in Alamosa and near Pueblo. Last week, Representative Mike Kaufman, also a Republican, had one in Aurora. You were there for that one. What did he have to say? Congressman Kaufman took questions from a room full of constituents for almost two hours. It was rowdy. It was nearly twice the time planned. And the vast majority of people wanted to talk about the repeal of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Specifically, people seem to be concerned that if Congress repealed Obamacare, their current coverage would go away, or if they were on Medicaid, their coverage would be cut. I talked to Kathy Robinson. She's from Centennial, and this was her first town hall. She said she was concerned about the state of the country and wanted to hear whether Kaufman would distance himself from the president. I would ask him, why not fix the Affordable Care Act? Why repeal it and start over? Fix what needs to be fixed. Kaufman was kind of vague about where he saw a solution here, but he was the only Republican in the Colorado delegation who openly supported the first Republican attempt at repealing and replacing Obamacare. That bill didn't even get a vote in the House because it had lost so much support among Republicans. Town halls have been quite a hot topic, with a lot of activist groups demanding lawmakers hold more of them. But it seems worth noting that neither of Colorado's senators, Cory Gardner nor Democrat Michael Bennett, are holding one during the break. I asked Gardner about this, and he said he would continue to be available to people in various settings, but he didn't say whether he would do anything open to the general public in the near future. We requested Senator Bennett's schedule and an interview with him several times during the break, and he never got back to us for that. Allison, thanks so much. Welcome to CPR. Thanks, Ryan. Allison Sherry, our government reporter. The number of tourists visiting Colorado has grown year after year, boosted in part by a multi-million dollar national ad campaign. And the state wants to build on that momentum. It has released a roadmap to make that happen. Kathy Ritter is state tourism director, and she's with us from her office. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for being with us. The opening lines of this new report say Colorado's visitor industry has increased at twice the national average since 2009 and is becoming one of the very top tourism destinations in the western U.S. And yet, uh, this new roadmap says your office could use another $10 million a year. Square those two things up for us. Okay, well, we put together a new strategic plan for Colorado tourism to maximize the benefit of this industry, which creates nearly one in nine jobs in Colorado, to maximize that benefit for residents of Colorado throughout the state. Um, we are, let me make it very clear, we're not asking for $10 million additional dollars in this roadmap. We are saying that there are many um, areas where we can increase traveler spending in our state without additional dollars. But to fully realize the potential of Colorado tourism would require some additional funding. And the $10 million that you refer to, Ryan, is really um, a reference to the fact that were our state budget um, funded on a parity level with the other top 20 states, 
visited, uh, or rather based on our visitor volume, our budget would be not $19 million a year, but $29 million a year. And so you think that Colorado is behind other states. Uh, you talk about parity there. Who, who are the main competitors to Colorado when it comes to tourism? That's a great question. That, that is a question we didn't have a good answer to until we did the research for this Colorado Tourism Roadmap. And what emerged from a nationwide survey is that Colorado ranks in the company of states like California, Arizona, New York, Nevada, um, uh, and oh, I forgot the other one, sorry. <laughs> but um, that's the company that we rank in um, when we are when travelers are considering where to go to for a vacation. And those states tend to be far better funded than our state is when it comes to attracting that set of travelers. And that's one of the, the main reasons that we think um, Colorado could benefit even more if we had a little more firepower in our marketing budget. Where do you think that money would come from? Well, that's a discussion. Um, One of the reasons uh, I would like to make very clear that we're not asking for money this year is because the state's priorities really are centering around transportation and education and um, funding rural hospitals. And so we know in this climate, you know, some of those major issues for our state really do need to be addressed. But we do believe um, it's time to really start having a meaningful conversation about how our state can maximize this very important industry. And so our Colorado Tourism Board is going to be focusing on this issue in the very near future. I suspect that you see the transportation uh, conversation as related to tourism. You think about the mountain traffic on I-70, and that connects to tourism, doesn't it? Absolutely. And we were doing, um, in the preparation of this Colorado Tourism Roadmap, we held more than 20 listening sessions around our state because we really are crafting this um, this roadmap, not just as a strategic plan for the Colorado Tourism Office, but a, a plan for the Colorado tourism industry. And as we were, we traveled around the state, one of the common themes we heard, no matter whether we were in the plains, in the mountain areas, in the western slope, in Denver, we were hearing concerns about our transportation infrastructure. And that is one of the areas that we've identified for um, progress in this roadmap because if we don't solve this problem, it really threatens to strangle the success not only of the tourism industry but many other um, forms of business in Colorado. And Residents, the residents' enjoyment of their own state. That's right, the enjoyment of those who already live here. So the state welcomed 77.7 million people in 2015 who contributed more than $19 billion to Colorado's economy, according to your office. And I'll say that the vast majority stayed in Metro Denver or the mountain resorts. I suppose that's to be expected to some extent. But how does this new roadmap spread the love, if you will, to places that might not be seeing this benefit right now. And and maybe you could take me to a community that illustrates this. And Ryan, you are touching on one of the most important aspects of this new roadmap. It's, um, it really does describe a new determination to ensure that traveler spending 
is um, maximized through every corner of our state. And and let me just touch on one thing. You mentioned the number of visitors um, that we had in 2015, nearly 78 million. Um, For 2016, we'll be announcing those numbers in June. We expect those numbers to go even higher. But with this roadmap, we are focusing not on increasing the number of visitors, but in in increasing the amount of traveler spending. And that really is the focus for us in um, measuring the success of, of all of our future efforts. Because we know that some Coloradans, uh, you know, would prefer not for, you know, for us to increase uh, the numbers of travelers. But what we're talking about is increasing the benefit. And um, as one of the tenets of this new roadmap, we are carving and we've become one of the few states to embrace the idea of sustainability, sustainable tourism, as a core tenet of how we make decisions in the future. And um, one of the ways that we embrace this idea is by um, dispersing travelers to less visited destinations. I wish this interview were happening in a couple of weeks because we're getting ready to announce a very exciting new statewide initiative to help support this idea. Well, give me an example of a place, uh, because you did tour the state, that would indeed like to see some of those visitors they're perhaps not seeing now? You know, let me give you two examples. Um, And they both come from our listening sessions. One was in the town of Salida, which already, you know, has a reputation as a tourism town because of its proximity to the collegiate peaks and, uh, you know, the headwaters of the Arkansas River. Right. Salida really enjoyed a summer traveler and a winter traveler. Uh, summer travelers came for the river. Winter travelers came for um, skiing, snowmobiling, all of the winter activities that take place there. But when Salida developed a new creative arts district, suddenly they were seeing a new form of traveler, a cultural traveler, who was coming year-round, who was evening out their traveler economy mm. by making it a year-round economy instead of a seasonal economy. So that's, that's one example of how applying the kind of thinking that we have embedded in the roadmap can really even out the bumps in an economy. And let me give you another example from another end of the state, um, Fruta. When, again, in one of our listening sessions, um, we heard from the Fruta city manager who stood up and said, because Fruta has really embraced the idea of positioning itself as a hub for bicycling, that influx of new dollars helped even out the bumps when Fruta, like so many other western slope states, lost income from the oil and gas downturn. And our, that city manager was saying, yes, we've taken some lumps like a lot of other western slope towns, but because we have income from tourism now, we didn't have to lay anybody off. We didn't have to cut our state budget. That evened out our economy. So those are some very real examples of how building a tourism economy can really you know, help um, cities, communities, weather storms. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the state's tourism director. That's Kathy Ritter. The state has released a new roadmap for what tourism might look like into the future. And uh, Kathy, I wanted to pick up on something uh, critical that you said earlier, which is that this is not so much focused on increasing the total number of people visiting the state, but on how much they're spending. Um, <laughs> is, is that a function then of increasing the amount of time they're here or just getting richer people who have more to spend? 
you know, it's not necessarily richer people. Um, it's interesting because millennials, for example, as a group, are willing to spend a much larger share of their personal income for experiences from travel. So it's not necessarily that we're aiming just at a, you know, a very upper crusty type of, of traveler. It is really more about inspiring the people who come here to sample more of what our state has to offer, to travel more widely. Um, but yes, it is partly about targeting a certain kind of a traveler who is going to leave spending in their wake with less impact on the economy. So probably our new mantra could be, you know, more spending, less impact on our on our natural resources. I see. No, less impact on the natural resources, because I think of the reports just today coming out about Hanging Lake Park outside Glenwood, reports of vandalism, illegal parking, dogs on the trail, swimming in the lake. Uh, how does the plan address, you know, this fundamental tension between attracting people uh, who love these places and yet may love them to death? <laughs> Yes. And, you know, the interesting part of the Colorado Traveler, one interesting aspect of the personality of the Colorado Traveler is that many of them love our state as much as we Coloradans do. That's why they come here and they come here year after year. But we see a real opportunity with this roadmap to start changing that conversation around our traveler and really enlisting our travelers in contributing to what we love most about our state. What would that look so like? So this new initiative, this new initiative I'm hinting at, actually provides travelers with very meaningful ways to contribute to the life of our state, whether through volunteering, we call it volunteerism, or learning about how to travel like a local when they're in our state, and we'll give them very meaningful ways of embracing that that ethic, like refilling their water bottles as opposed to leaving a trail of plastic water bottles behind them as they travel through our state. Why not encourage travelers to say, do what we do. We, 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 we refill our water bottles. And I think there's some uh, real opportunities for education as well and messaging, shared messaging. So we're exploring all of these um, types of initiatives now with federal uh, not-for-profit partners and, um, and other entities that have a great deal of credibility in this area. Interesting. So come to Colorado and help restore a trail or something. Um, I am curious if you see tourists as proto-residents, that is to say um, that if, if they come here, they'll want to stay. Uh, do you just assume that that's part of who you attract? You know, I cannot point to a statistic. I have many statistics I could share with you, but no. I can tell you anecdotally I cannot tell you how many times I've heard the story of people saying they came here on a vacation and they decided to change up their life to figure out a way to live here because they loved it that much. I've heard this story again and again and again. And actually, it's even one of our economic development strategies, you know, attracting CEOs here and making them fall in love with our state so they want to move their businesses here. It's not, uh, you know, it's not a far-fetched notion when you have a state like Colorado to share. With the idea, perhaps, that they bring jobs when they come uh, and establish their companies here. But speak to the person listening who says, oh, my gosh, the last thing we need is another resident. <laughs> yeah, I, and I do understand that. I moved here myself um, just a couple of years ago after visiting here for nine years. And uh, I know there's, a, there's sort of a widespread desire to be the, the, the last person through the door and shut the door behind you so you can protect <laughs> what you love so much yeah. you know, about, and why you moved to this state. 
But, you know, the fact is um, part of the vibrancy that our state can really lay claim to these days is because of this influx of new travelers uh, and new residents. Um, And I think there's a huge opportunity for Colorado tourism, in fact, around all of these new residents who've moved to our state um, in recent years and haven't truly experienced all the glory, you know, that we have to offer right here. So, So we see some real opportunity, especially in um, attracting visitors to those less traveled regions of our state to really reach out to the new residents and say, hey, look what's right in your own backyard. Right, the staycation idea. In addition to the fact that you've expanded your message to more national and international travelers as well. Kathy, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciated the chance to share. That is Kathy Ritter, the state's tourism director. You can find a link to the state's new tourism roadmap at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Denver band Tennis went back to basics for their latest record. The husband and wife duo, Patrick Riley and Elena Moore, rented an A-frame cabin in Fraser. They set up a makeshift studio and between cooking dinner and doing laundry, recorded the 10 songs on yours conditionally. On Friday, tennis performed at the Coachella Music Festival near Palm Springs, California, and they'll be back again this weekend for another set. Elena Patrick, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you for having us. So for your previous album, Ritual in Repeat, you worked with uh, several big-name producers like Patrick Harney of the Black Keys, but this time you decided to go it alone, or just the two of you together. Um, Why that decision, Elena? Oh, actually, I'm going to throw this one to Patrick because he's all excited yeah, to discuss. Yeah, throw me a little bone. Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I just felt like we were ready for it. We, you know, our very first album was self-produced and self-engineered. And, um, you know, we've been getting all this information from all these producers and learning as much as we could. And we just felt like we were at the spot where we were like, man, if we do this again, I, th- I think we'll nail it this time. Yeah, we really wanted to challenge ourselves and see what we could make if we did it alone And um, we also wanted that intimacy of working, you know, just the two of us, the same intimacy that we have throughout our whole writing process. We wanted to bring that into the studio experience as well, which is something that I felt like we had been missing in the past. Um, It's also probably the most fun part for us. And I think that's like the most special moment for us is when we can like write and record a song for the first time and hear it back. And there's so much joy in that. Yeah, absolutely. And it means so much more to be like, for better or worse, we did this. This is just ours. For better or for worse, that's uh, some interesting language there. Do do fans assume... Welcome to my mind. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, do fans assume that like everything the band does and writes is about your marriage? Yes. I th- yeah, I think a, mm-hmm. people assign a lot of value to it. Like our relationship is the core identity of our band. And it kind of is, but if I'm ever singing about a you, if it's not, you know, if I'm not saying I, people assume the you is Patrick, and it is not always Patrick. <laughs> Who else might it be? 
Um, I've written about friendships. I've written, you know, sometimes the you is just more abstract, you know, just like the other, just like a perceiver in general. Um, so I, I, it doesn't happen so often anymore. And I feel like the songs that are about Patrick are extremely explicit, like matrimony, for example, details are wedding day. It's not really a mystery who I'm talking about in that <laughs> setting. <laughs> The songs on this new album have a, a retro feel, but they're not rooted in just one era. I mean, I hear strains of 60s pop, 70s singer-songwriter music, 80s dance pop, uh, in some ways mashed together. Why don't we hear the track Fields of Blue? Denver Band Tennis from their new album, Yours Conditionally. Tell me about this song, Patrick. Um, this one was one of the ones that we worked out while sailing in the Sea of Cortez. Um, we had sailed about 1,500 miles from San Diego to this little cove called San Juanico um, in Sea of Cortez, Mexico. And um, yeah, I think we, this is just reminiscent of our time at sea and the like isolation that we feel. And it's all wrapped up in this one song. Yeah, Patrick had written all the music, and um, he had recorded that demo for me. And then I just took lyrics from my ship's log and sang it right over top. That's like an old way of songwriting. We don't normally do that anymore because hmm. um, it's a lot harder for me to try and like transform basically just guitar music that Patrick wrote into a song. But I felt like this one was like more about like a vibe or an experience than anything in particular. I want to note that your first album, Cape Dory, was uh, inspired by the sailing trip as well that you took just after getting married. And uh, as you say, this new album is inspired in part by a sailing adventure. Is is um, sailing the Sea of Cortez smooth sailing, Patrick? No, not at all. I think, you know, we got in over our heads on this trip. We, uh, you know, we left pretty confident because we've been doing this for about five years now and you were confident yeah <laughs> every time we leave i think what are we doing <laughs> but like i don't know day three there was one of our first trips was a three day passage just nonstop for three days and we got about we were like 150 miles off the coast and uh the weather turned a little bit against us and we definitely had the moment where we looked at each other like what the hell are we doing out here like this is a huge mistake yeah, and later on in our trip, I um, discovered that Steinbeck had kept a ship's log from a research expedition that he did, um, maybe, I think it was in the 40s, um, and he basically took the exact same um, like tra like voyage through all the same ports as we were doing, and in his accounting of it, he wrote about how it's like one of the most violent sea bodies of water with terrible like facetious weathered patterns. And I was like, oh, perfect. Right as we were rounding like the Cape into the Sea of Cortez, I discovered this. Yeah, we probably should have researched the trip a little bit more. <laughs> All the pictures we saw made it look like glassy, serene, like vacation photos. And then when we got there, it was just like 
gale force winds, like violent storms. And we're like, okay, this is not exactly what we had imagined. Right. And so the the writing doesn't happen at the same time necessarily as the the sailing because there's not a lot of headspace when you are trying to stay afloat. Um, Right. You know, I I don't know if if this is a theme or if I'm inventing this, but isolation, right? So the, the two of you together on the boat and then the two of you in this cabin in Fraser where you end up recording the new record um yeah are you we are you guys like hermits <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah totally. well we we aren't misanthropes but we have very fragile egos we've discovered and it's difficult to be confident in our ideas or you know the vision that we have for whatever we're making if we allow too much outside influence or perspective on our work. So literally, the more alone we are, the easier it is to just follow our instincts and enjoy what we're making and not think too much about it until we have a finished product. Um, So this was really like the most joyful, natural songwriting process we've ever had because we took so many steps to remove ourselves from um, the pressures and expectations that, you know, tennis has at this point. Yeah, there's a lot of it because you are increasingly popular. I want to ask you in a little bit about that and how it makes you feel. But Patrick, take us <laughs> take us into that into that cabin in in Fraser. What it felt like, what the days were like. Yeah, so we, you know, after working with all these different producers, we've kind of like assembled this studio that's like you know, like this is Jim Eno's favorite preamp. This is Patrick Carney's favorite compressor and EQ combination. And so we had this like you know, assembly of gear that represented all these producers we had worked with. But Um, super minimal. Like, we really didn't need much. We learned, and that's something that we learned from Richard Swift. Like, you don't need a lot to make something sound, as long as you know what you want. Um, So, yeah, we brought in, like, this very minimal amount of gear and set it up into the what used to be the dining room of this house and turned that into the tracking room. And I could sit there, like, cooking dinner while Patrick edited vocal takes right in front of me. And it was just like a very, very like homey, low stress. Like it felt like very, it felt like low stakes. It felt like just integrating recording right into our day-to-day routine, um, which was amazing for me. It just took away a lot of the stress of making a record. And at the same time, we didn't get cell service up there. So we really did disconnect while we were recording. And mm-hmm. there wasn't this like, we were not able to really like listen to other music while we were up there. So we were just mm. inundated with our project. Yeah. Let's hear another song from the new album. This is called Ladies Don't Play Guitar. Is there a feminist message in this song, Elena? Yes. Yes, there is. Um, After, you know, it's really not something that I had noticed about my life until I spent a lot of time touring and also beginning to understand what it's like to present yourself publicly, like as a band. Um, I started to notice, you know, very different, you know, expectations between 
Patrick and I, uh, like how to be and what people expected from us on stage. And, Hmm. you know, things would come up like um, requests that I stop playing my keyboard and spend more time out from behind that and be more of a front person um, as if my all the parts I'm playing are irrelevant, even though it's like mostly like piano or synth driven songs. Like if I wasn't playing, the song would not yeah, I don't be think there people anymore. People realize how core your keyboard is. Yeah, or like, piano like is that's inessential, throw it away and please just dance around or something, which nobody mm. wants to see me dance around. That's a huge <laughs> mistake. Um and just you know, just little things like that. Or there's also like this um persistent idea that Patrick does all the songwriting and that I just sing, um, which isn't true, especially for this record. I wrote half of the songs and he wrote the other half. We wrote separately. Um, I also feel like you did a lot of engineering help on this, which is something like that you never get credited about. Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely, and it's, you know, it's nothing, you know, malicious or anything. It's just things that I notice, including just like, I noticed um, for writing Ladies Don't Play Guitar, there was this guitar solo that I heard in my head that I could not explain to Patrick, and I wanted to play it for him, but I couldn't. And it was really frustrating because I think I have like an inner shredder inside of me. <laughs> um, so I was explaining to Patrick, like, I o- the only reason why I don't play electric guitar is because of just this gendered, like, I'm just a girl. So people were like, here's a piano. Nobody thought, here is a drum kit. Here's an electric guitar. It's just an accident of gender that kind of shaped my whole, you know, adult life. Um, so that's where this song came from. And I try to have sort of a sense of humor about it. So, you know, it's like, it's sarcastic. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's something that I notice now in my professional life and I like to point it out because it helps me be more aware of it and actively resist it. So I mentioned that you just performed at Coachella in Southern California. You're going to be performing there again this weekend. And it just seems like the audiences for tennis get bigger and bigger. And yet I've read in various places and heard in the subtext of your answers that there's a desire to stay small in some regards. Um, In about 30 seconds or so, Patrick, are those two things fundamentally at odds? Your popularity and your desire to keep things intimate. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we as people, you know, we are hermits. We are like isolationists. And, um, you know, the bigger this gets, it does get more stressful. There's more of a demand that's put on us. And we're just two people back here. Like this Mm -hmm. is like a mom and pop operation. Yeah. So we think about this all the time. Like what is our goal for tennis? If we don't really want to get that big, I see what happens to other people when this pressure builds on them. And I just don't want that kind of a life. But obviously, we want our music to reach a lot of ears. So, um, you know, I don't know. It's just something we have to negotiate every day. But we're not, I don't think we're going to like self-sabotage our careers (laughs) because of this. Like, (laughs) I mean, we accept like all the praise that people give us. And like the fact that people keep coming to our shows is, you know, the best thing. Elena Moore and Patrick Riley make up the Denver band Tennis. Their new album is called Yours Conditionally. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Tomorrow's the anniversary of the start of the Ludlow Massacre, one of the most violent chapters in U.S. labor history. 
103 years ago, striking coal miners in southern Colorado were protesting dangerous working conditions and low pay. Greek miners have been called the bone and sinew of the strike. And their story is told in the documentary Ludlow, Greek Americans During the Colorado Coal War. Frasso Tsuka of Athens, Greece, is one of the filmmakers, and retired Judge Chris Melanakis of Westminster is a descendant of Greek miners. They spoke with Colorado Matters host Nathan Heffel back in the fall. Frasso, Chris, welcome to the program. Hello, Nathan. Hundreds of thousands of Greeks immigrated to the U.S. in the early 1900s. For many, the only work they could get was in the dangerous coal mines around the West. Uh, In the film, there's a description of what it was like to walk deep underground into a mine. Να φτάσουν στο μέρος στο οποίο εργάζονται, έλαβε χώρα νοδιπορία υπό την γη. Thick darkness engulfed us, and the water froze my feet. The dampness and the cold under the earth were something I had never felt before, something closely related to death. After a long time of walking, my guide pointed out dark shadows moving rhythmically, whose blackened faces, shiny eyes, and the required light on their head gave the impression of inhabitants of Hades. The mines were notoriously dangerous, and the miners lived in extreme poverty. We've posted a photo at CPRnews.org showing coal miners deep underground with burning candles attached to their headgear. Most of the Greeks in southern Colorado worked in coal mines owned by the huge Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, CFNI. Chris, both of your grandfathers were coal miners after the Coalfield War, but conditions hadn't changed much despite the strike. Uh, in the film, you tell the story of the events leading up to your paternal grandfather's death. Uh, tell us that story. Sure. My uh, paternal grandfather uh, had a couple molars extracted. They didn't sanitize the uh, equipment that was used, the utensils that were used to extract the molars. Uh, my grandfather uh, contracted a staph infection. Uh, and for 10 days, uh, the uh, staph infection raged through his body. Uh, he worked nine of those 10 days in the mines. On the 10th day, he died because of staph. there was no way to treat a staph infection back then. Uh, when he died, he left behind uh, a widow and six children. My father was the oldest of the children. He was 10 years of age. Uh, my grandmother uh, could not speak uh, English at all. Obviously, none of the children really could produce in the mines. Uh, they lived in company housing. Uh, they uh, obviously they were paid by scrip, which was only negotiable in a company store. As a result, uh, my grandmother was going to be put on the street with her children. Uh, but my father's brother uh, went into the mines and started to work uh, the mines so that the family would have an opportunity to have a roof over their head and a place to live. And these workers were essentially indentured servants to CFNI, the mining and steelmaking company owned by John D. Rockefeller Jr. Uh, so how did the company keep these workers in such poverty? Well, they they sent their agents to uh, uh, recruit the workers from uh, all over Southeast uh, Europe. Uh, that at that time, twenty five million people came to the U.S. from Southeast Europe. Half a million from Greece, uh, uh, from Greece at that time, and uh, they promised them a, a home where they went and a good job. But when they came here, and they they lent them sometimes money to buy the ticket to get here. And um, but they put collateral for that le- for that uh, loan. Uh, there there are farms in Greece, uh, so they, when they got here, they already owned. They took them into Colorado, and they already owe, owed money to the company. 
and the money they made in the in at their work was not enough for them to live and pay back the loan. So they were always the, uh, owing money to the company. They didn't know their rights because they didn't speak the language. So they were kept uh, practically as slaves in the in the company towns. And everything they purchased was through that company. And if they didn't, uh, in the movie, you talk about how they were just fired. Mm-hmm. Were, were the miners treated differently by uh, other miners in these camps? Uh, the Greek miners? Yeah. Uh, I don't think that they were treated differently. I think Italians and uh, Greeks uh, were uh, treated similarly. Uh, Greeks in particular, because they, especially here in Colorado, the Cretans, because they came from Crete, was, which was in continuous uh, struggle against the Ottoman Empire, and they were fighting the Turks all, for years, 200 years they were fighting the Turks. When they came here, these people were warriors. They were not... Um, so they they were not used to being treated in such a way, and they resisted being treated uh, badly. So I think that Greeks uh, maybe did have a, a bad name as being uh, um, too too uh, strong willed. And Chris, in southern Colorado, New Mexico, it seems that the towns these were, were set up via ethnicity, in a sense. Yeah, they were. In fact, my father and my uncle uh, would tell us that. Uh, Rockefeller in particular had set up uh, the towns so that each uh, ethnic group would live in a specific section of the town. Uh, Because they spoke different languages, there was no common language. There was no way for them to communicate and to effectively organize. Uh, My father and uncle used to tell me that they would have a Greek town and an Italian town and whatever the ethnicity in that particular camp was, and they would associate with people of, uh, of their own ethnic background. And so... Uh, it, it completely frustrated any uh, ability of the uh, miners to effectively organize. But they did eventually organize, isn't that correct? Mm-hmm. Well, what, what the union did at that time uh, was to fi- they found a way to to uh, to unite the miners by by hiring bilingual organizers. Because the miners could not talk to each other because of their language differences. There were 23 different languages being spoken in the mines. They hired bilingual uh, organizers. And in that way, the miners were able to communicate with the union. And they found out that they had rights and they can, uh, they can fight for their rights. And eventually, by 1913, they were able to organize. And this was the United Mine Workers the of United America. Mine, yes. The the Ludlow Massacre happened in April 1914, and women and children suffocated as they hid beneath a tent when company-backed militiamen torched the Union camp there. That ignited 10 days of violence known as the Colorado Coalfield War. Chris, tell us about these Greek strikers and, and what experiences they brought to the struggle, uh, which greatly surprised the, the company men. Well, because so many of the, the, the Greek uh, miners were uh, Cretan, uh, as Froso has indicated. Mm. Historically, they had fought a guerrilla war against the the Turks who occupied the island uh, for a couple hundred years. So they were organized. They understood, uh, you know, what it took uh, to to, uh, fight uh, this type of a fight. They understood uh, how to uh, engage uh, the militia, which actually the militia weren't uh, true militia, you know, there were mine goons who were recruited into the National Guard. So they, they came with strategy and tactics that 
they had learned over a couple hundred years in fighting guerrilla warfare against the Turks, and they completely caught the National Guard off uh, off guard. And uh, as a result, uh, they were able to overwhelm them and to uh, to seize large areas of territory, uh, destroy some mines, uh, and they were a formidable opponent. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Froso Tsuka, and she led the research for a new film about Greek Americans during the Colorado Coalfield War and the Ludlow Massacre in 1914. Chris Melonakis of Westminster is a descendant of Greek coal miners. Froso, tell us about uh, Louis Tikas. Well, Louis Tikas was um, the leader of the Greeks, of course. He was, uh, from what we found out, a personality. He had a great personality. Uh, he was a, a very good negotiator. And uh, he he came from uh, uh, Crete in uh, nine, 1908. 1906. He, 1906. Mm. And he lived only for eight years in the United States. He was killed in 1914 when he was 28 years old. At the Ludlow Battle. At the Ludlow Battle, yes. Yeah. And uh, he's uh, uh, the, the head of the uh, militia killed him. He broke his... Uh, uh, rifle over his head at that, on the day of the Ludlow massacre. I think Chris can tell that story much better. Yeah, yeah. The guy's name was Carl Lindenfelter, who had, he was a lieutenant with the National Guard, and uh, basically he had asked uh, Tikus and a couple other uh, strikers to meet him to uh, attempt to resolve the standoff, and it was a ploy to get him up there. Um, uh, Lindenfelter was. Uh, uh, had had fought in the Philippines and also had uh, lived a life as a mercenary. Uh, he was a very brutal man. So once once he uh, and Ticus uh, confronted each other, they had some initial discussions. He became angry. He hit him with the uh, the stock of the rifle. He cut his head open to the bone, knocked him down, and then uh, uh, basically Louis Ticus was murdered. He was shot in the back a couple of times as he lay on the ground. Writer Dan Jodakas uh, authored a book about Greek-American radicalism, radicalism, and he is quoted in the, in the movie. He says, Greeks weren't welcome in the U.S., and native-born Americans thought that all the immigrants were taking their jobs away, and the Greeks somehow managed to get classified as the lowest form of Europeans, and maybe not even European at all, uh, to the Americans at that time. Does that mirror some of today's attitudes about immigrants, uh, maybe even in Greece? Yes, actually, that was uh, the, one of the reasons that we decided to do this documentary. Uh, it, one of the phenomena we have in Greece now is that Greece is changing very fast from a homogeneous society of all Greeks to a multinational, multi-ethnic uh, society. And uh, uh, as a result, uh, racism is rising. We actually have groups like the Golden Dawn, which is a fascist group that has about 7% of the popular vote and is in the Greek uh, parliament right now. So what we one of the things we hope to do was to show to Greece, to Greeks that uh, once we were in the place of these immigrants, once we were immigrants ourselves, and we suffered the things that the immigrants are suffering now, and uh, it was the film was very well received in Greece, and uh, it's quite, I think it made a big impression. I think actually more people probably know Ludlow in Greece than they do in the United States. <laughs>
That is filmmaker Froso Tsuka talking about her documentary Ludlow, Greek Americans in the Colorado Coal War, and former State District Judge Chris Melanakis of Westminster, who's a descendant of Greek miners. They spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel last fall. You can watch a trailer at cprnews.org. 103 years ago this week, the Ludlow Massacre began. That's the program for today with special thanks to David Hill and Ryan Warner at CPR News.